Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Paul Whitco, a first-year Johnson MBA student and producer on the Present Value team. I'm pleased to introduce this episode with professors Christina Renenkamp and Ryan Guggenmos, both professors of accounting at the Johnson Graduate School of Management. And I'm Matt Douglas, a Johnson MBA student and fellow producer on the Present Value team. Today's episode is not your typical conversation about accounting. No discussions of debits, credits, assets, or liabilities. Rather, professors Renenkamp and Guggenmos introduce us to the field of behavioral accounting, a primary area of their research. Our discussion covers topics such as bias in managerial decision-making, how social media impacts investor disclosures, and the concept of iFOMO. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Jonathan Tin, and today I'm excited to welcome Assistant Professor Ryan Guggenmos and Associate Professor Christina Renekamp both professors of accounting at the Johnson Graduate School of Management, with research in the field of behavioral accounting. Professor Guggenmos received his PhD from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and his BA from Seattle University. At Johnson, he teaches the popular elective managerial accounting and reporting. He has been the recipient of many awards, including two research advisory board grants from the Center for Audit Quality. Professor Guggenmos is a certified public accountant in the state of Washington, And prior to his doctoral studies, he worked as an auditor with Deloitte. Professor Renekamp received her Master's of Science and PhD from Johnson in Accounting and earned her MBA and Bachelor's of Business Administration from the University of Iowa. She teaches the core financial accounting class for the Ithaca Residential MBA programs, and her work is regularly published in leading accounting journals. In 2017, she was named one of Poet & Quant's Best 40 Under 40 Professors. Professor Guggenmos, Professor Renekamp, Thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So similar to both Professor Libby and Dean Nelson, who discussed accounting fraud in an earlier Present Value episode, you both study a branch of accounting called behavioral accounting. Professor Renekamp, I thought I'd start with you to explain to our listeners what is behavioral accounting and how did you become interested in this field? Sure. So behavioral accounting, I would say, is it's a stream of research that just kind of recognizes that people aren't machines, mm-hmm. and they're not going to always behave very rationally. So we draw on a lot of theories from economics and psychology to try and better understand the decisions that different individuals make in the financial reporting process, whether that means the, the auditors and managers that are kind of involved in the preparation of financial reporting or the analysts and investors that are involved in kind of using that information. And my route to this research is kind of interesting. So my mom actually is a fantastic businesswoman. But I sort of initially rebelled against that. And I actually started out in biomedical engineering in undergrad. And then I was in a, an accident just before my sophomore year and physically could not stand up for my chemistry and biology labs. So my mom came to me and she said, well, why don't you try some business classes? She was like pushed for it again. And it turns out that business schools have really comfortable chairs. So I took some finance courses and I, I loved them. Ended up switching and getting my degree in finance and working as a financial analyst for the Department of the Interior in Washington, D.C., which is like the National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service. And so I got to use a lot of accounting concepts to try and do really unique things, though, try and understand how to depreciate picnic tables or how to inventory trout in a stream. And it made me realize, I think, a lot more that there is a lot of discretion in accounting. There's a set of rules, but 
the way that those rules get applied is really interesting. And because there's so much discretion, there's probably a lot of judgment involved. And so I kind of started to learn more about that and realize this is a way to study the behavior of people and understand how these rules in accounting actually affect the behavior of individuals and kind of their their well-being. And so got more and more interested in it that way, I think. Yeah, I think for me, it's kind of funny because we ended up in the same place, but we had a very different path other than I also started. I started as a chemical engineering major, but I could stand up for the lab, but I just hated it. Right. So I went into these labs and I was like, I just spent six hours and I got four drops of some like piece of aspirin. Like, what am I going to do with this? Right. So I left school and I went and I managed restaurants for about five years. And in that process, it was, you know, these aren't I wasn't managing like some sort of Park Avenue steakhouse. These were pizza huts and these were jack-in-the-box restaurants. And in that process, I learned a lot about how people interact. And I liked when the numbers came in every month and I was always excited to see like, oh, well, how did I do? Like, what was the profit? What was the loss? And I started asking more questions about, well, I thought I was doing better, but this number is not moving the way I think it is. And this, you know, what does this add up to? And I started to realize that, you know, as those numbers changed, my behavior changed, right? And sometimes I was doing things that I'm not going to say were bad, but, you know, they probably want me to focus on A, B, and C. I might have been focusing on D and E because that's how my bonus was calculated and things like that, right? And so at that point, I realized that, you know, maybe the life of hiring people to run the drive-thru might not be for me. And I went back to school and was a accounting major and a philosophy minor. And so I was always interested in this, how people think and how people interact and how these numbers came together. You know, a little different different path. Uh, I worked for Deloitte as a CPA for a couple of years before I went back to do my PhD. But then at that point, really got into this, this idea of, you know, how do people process accounting numbers? How do they affect their decisions in financial contexts with auditors? You know, in general, how people are going to want to make those decisions. Okay, great. And so I guess now that we have that foundation of behavioral accounting, I wanted to start with your recent research into pro forma earnings. We've seen a rising prevalence of pro forma or street earnings, where companies adjust generally accepted accounting principles, otherwise known as GAAP, to, in their accounts, better reflect the underlying economics of their business. An example that comes to mind is Netflix, who reports a figure of contribution margin which removes the impact of their extensive technology investments. Could you start off with elaborating on the differences between the two reporting methods and then share some of your findings? Sure. I think that uh, one thing that's interesting about this area to me especially is that, you know, we go through a lot of education, whether you're becoming a financial statement preparer, user, about all these rules about GAAP, right? And you have to do this and you have to do this. And, you know, there's, it's very intricate. And after all those rules, companies have these numbers where they say, well, you know, those rules are great. But here, I want to report to you community-based earnings, or I want to report to you this other number. And I know there's these rules, but forget that for a second. Just take this, right? And, you know, it's something that we talk about in the, or I talk about in the class that I teach. When things have nicknames, I'm always kind of on edge, right? And so, you know, if you've got this kind of elaborate number for this, like, what does it really mean? And so that's definitely why this area interests me is that it just seems so, it's, it's almost amusing to me that you could go through all of these rules and then come out with something that's completely different than that. Yeah, so you have, you have these gap numbers that follow the accounting standards, and they're audited, and you kind of know where they're coming from, although they involve some discretion. And then you have these non-gap numbers that companies call them all kinds of different things, adjusted earnings, core earnings, this community-based earnings that's <laughs> kind of in the news lately as being sort of hilarious. And so the idea behind our research is that managers want to be able to tell their story, and they're going to find a way to get kind of their vision of the company out there. And so there's been a lot of discussion in the news about how non-GAAP earnings are maybe not real earnings. They're maybe opportunistic, that kind of thing. But the idea behind our research is that, well, actually, 
giving them this outlet for sharing their vision of the company is going to maybe improve the quality of the gap numbers, that they're going to use less of their discretion in those gap audited numbers if they feel like they can get their story out in other ways. And so that's what we find, that the presence of once you let them provide these non-gap earnings numbers, that the quality of the gap accounting numbers actually goes up. And then that is diminished a little bit, actually, when you make it more clear the reconciliation between the two. So if you tie the non-GAAP numbers back to the GAAP numbers and make it clear how they differ, then all of a sudden that has some negative implications again for the GAAP accounting numbers. And even more so, I think one of the one of the cool things I like about that study is we also look at a group where we let them know, hey, regulators are looking at these non-GAAP numbers, right? So just so you know, there's going to be a focus on these. And at that point, the you know the effect of them being used as another way to tell the story really goes away, right? Because at that point, you know, if you've got attention here and it's shifted back to these non-gap earnings as maybe being opportunistic or maybe being misleading, whether they are or not, just even knowing that the focus is there changes managers' behaviors. Kind of takes some of their freedom away to get their story out. And then I know earlier before our interview, we talked about that spectrum of as an everyday investor, how do I know which company is reporting a accurate picture of their business? I think that's what makes it difficult, right? Is so, you know, if we had every company making these non-GAAP earnings and have them all be completely ridiculous, that'd be easy. We'd just say, well, this number is garbage, right? We're, gonna th- we're just going to diminish it. We're not going to think about it. We'll just go to the GAAP number. And on the other hand, if the non-GAAP number was always really high quality and had a lot of information, it'd be great. We'd always know to use that number. But the issue is, is it's, there's a spectrum, right? Even somebody with a lot of financial expertise, you know, it's very difficult to tease that out, let alone a Main Street investor. Yeah, I think you just don't know. Yeah, so there's your, there's your <laughs> advice. You yeah. just don't know. And so I guess pro forma earnings, we, we covered our, so an example of where firms try to present themselves in the best possible light by adjusting some of the rules explicitly. But another area of your research is in bias, where both gap and pro forma results could be implicitly impacted by managers without the knowledge of investors or potentially even themselves. Could you start off with walking us through some common examples of bias we see in everyday life and then connecting them into accounting? So I think before we can understand biases, it's kind of important to understand where they come from. So we make decisions all day, every day. And if we had to actually think about each of them, we'd be sort of just frozen. We couldn't get anything done. And so a lot of the decisions we make all day long become automatic. And we use these heuristic judgments where we just kind of use our gut feeling and just kind of behave automatically. And in a lot of cases, that works just fine until it doesn't. And then and then we make these kind of predictable mistakes. And that's what we kind of do when we're researching these different types of biases. So I guess some of the ones that we see fairly commonly in our research, just to give you some sense of these. Um, so one big one I think would be overconfidence. And it's the idea that we are, in general, predictably more confident in our ability at things than we actually are able to do those things. I think the common example that you hear people give is everybody thinks they're a better than average driver, which is, of course, not possible. And so when you bring that over to sort of accounting settings, I think we have some evidence in some of the types of research that we do that managers might be too confident in their ability to pick projects that are going to be successful. They might be too confident in their ability to predict outcomes and make forecasts of performance. And then on the flip side, same for analysts investors. They may be overconfident in their ability to pick stocks and it ends up costing them financially. Yeah. So I think that for my, it's kind of funny to have a favorite bias, but I think my favorite one is this is anchoring and adjustment. So anchoring and adjustment is a common bias where if you see a number, it kind of it 
occupies the space in your mind. And then when you go to adjust from that number, you usually do so insufficiently. And so with anchoring and adjustment, I think what's interesting about it is that it's very, very robust. And so you can think about financial scenarios where this would happen. Like if you were to make a budget, right? And then you go the next year and do adjust the budget, you're probably going to anchor on last year's number and not adjust it sufficiently. But also they've showed this in psychology studies in all sorts of scenarios where they can do things like have someone spin a wheel that just has high numbers and low numbers and ask them the temperature in the room and it will predict the direction of the temperatures that they, they choose. And so even these things that serve great purpose for us most days when they get into these scenarios where you kind of get the wrong answer from this, it can be dangerous. I think that bias is a loaded term, right? So we automatically think of bias as bad. And for us, in our research, it usually just means that there's a predicted outcome, right? That we know which direction it's kind of going. And sometimes it is bad, but other times it's not. And I guess going back to anchoring, what do you say to the used car salesman when you, when you go in? <laughs> yeah, so I think that, I don't think this is, you know, a toolbox for everything you do in life. But, you know, I always try to stack the deck in my favor when I can. So when I go buy a car, and I don't have any evidence this actually works, but I always say, can you give me the car for a dollar, right? And hoping that it will anchor them lower. It probably doesn't, but I feel better about it. And then, you know, if you feel better about it, maybe, I, maybe I'm overconfident. Who knows? And there's a lot of this stuff going on. But I think that it creates a, a lot of opportunities for research and a lot of just kind of interesting scenarios that you can bring up. I feel like you use this when we go out to lunch. I probably do, actually. <laughs> and it may or may not be working, but now, that, now that's yeah. blown, right? Yeah, no. I owe you $5, right? Nope, I think no, it's I $1 think it's more million. Like $14. <laughs> so I wanted to drill down a bit to the source of the bias. Professor Guggenmos, we often think of creativity as a great cultural attribute for a firm. My mind immediately goes to the Apple slogan, think different. But you have written about it, creativity itself as a double-edged sword when it comes to managerial decisions within a creative organization. Why is that? Yeah, so I think that your hunch is correct. Creativity is a great thing, right? And for businesses, for individuals, you know, for, you know, for anything, really, we want to have new and novel things. And, and that is wonderful. However, as you, as you mentioned, my dissertation looks at some of the kind of the dark side or the downside of creativity. So what I examine is how creative cultures and organizations can lead to what we call real earnings management behaviors. And so real earnings management is a phenomenon that occurs when people want to make their organization look a little bit better than they have or they are, right? Have inflated, usually inflated revenues or reduced expenses by delaying operational decisions. So for example, let's say I'm worried about my expenses. I could fix my walk-in refrigerator now in quarter four, and then my, you know, my expenses would go down and therefore my net income would go up. Or I could just wait and fix it maybe next year, right? And when that occurs, this kind of delaying of a repair just for the purpose of, you know, of meeting an earnings number, that's real earnings management. In this study, I draw on some of my experience working in fast food restaurants to put participants in a scenario where they're part of an organization that's either in, some condi in one condition has a very creative culture and another condition has more of a traditional or less innovative culture. And what I find is the participants in the more innovative culture are more likely to defer this expense, which actually causes a real risk to the company and a risk to them receiving their bonus in order to hit that number. And Professor Renekamp, you've studied how regulation can drive bias with your research studying the effect of reversibility for asset impairment. Could you walk our listeners through this research and how it came about? Sure. It's a research project with Kathy Rupar and Nick Seibert, where there's a difference between U.S. accounting standards and international accounting standards in the impairment rules for assets. So if, it, if an asset has lost some of its value and you have to write it down for impairment, under U.S. accounting standards, you can't write it up if the value is recovered. But under the international standards, you can. And so we decided to use an experiment to try and understand how the reversibility of those impairments 
might actually affect managers' beliefs about kind of the viability of a project. And so what we find is that we have people acting as managers in a setting where they learn about a division that's impaired. It's not doing so well. It's a like a TV division that's it's not panning out. And so they're trying to make a decision about whether to invest some additional funds. And it's kind of ambiguous. Like if you invest additional funds, either it's just kind of a lost cause or it's going to turn around. And it's going to be the next big thing. And so what we find when we manipulate or change whether or not the accounting standards allow for the value of the assets to be written back up is it changes kind of how managers think about the project. And so if the value can't be written back up, impairment is kind of permanent, then the managers kind of say, oh, okay, forget this division. We're done here. And they don't invest additional funds into that division. Versus if you just change the accounting, none of the economics have changed, but you just change the accounting to say they can write that value back up if it turns around all of a sudden, what we see is the managers are kind of thinking to themselves, okay, there's there's a chance. <laughs> we can make this happen. And so they end up investing additional funds into that division, and it's all a function of the accounting standards. So what, what we're trying to say then is these regulations holding all of the economics constant have real, real consequences for managers' operating decisions and kind of what happens in the firm. And I know prior to this interview, we kind of discussed the really, this really flips the paradigm of behavior driving accounting and regulation. Can you elaborate to our listeners why this is particularly problematic? I don't know. So I guess one of the things that we can't really say in experiments is what the right behavior is. But I think maybe problematic is a little too strong of a word, but it is, I think it's important to know that not changing any of the economics, but changing the way information gets reported can have actual economic consequences. And that's something that our research can do really well because we use experiments where everything is controlled really well and we're just changing one or two things at a time. We can really pinpoint the consequences of changes in the financial reporting setting. And I think that's something that is important to remember because we think, at least for me, when I came into accounting, I thought probably two things, right? I thought accounting is completely black and white. And in general, accounting is about writing things down or reporting, right? It's just a record of what happened. And I think that something that I found interesting about accounting and why it led to some of the research that I'm interested in, sounds like is, is pretty relevant to this study, is that, first of all, everything in accounting that actually does matter is probably not black and white. Anyone can count cash in a bank account. It's really not that difficult, right? But you know, trying to figure out the value of a wireless spectrum or something that you're going to put on the books is not so cut and dried, right? And then also this idea, again, that, well, accounting is about recording. Well, sure, accounting is a lot about recording, but if we can hold the economics constant, and then just change the accounting rules and have someone's behavior change. That means in some contexts, at least, accounting is more about or is also about what happens in the future as opposed to what, just about writing stuff down from the past. Speaking to the idea that accounting is either black or white, biases in any field present their own sets of challenges. But it would seem that biases are even more delicate in a discipline such as accounting, where objectivity and precision are of utmost importance. What steps can managers or firms take to mitigate biases within their own organizations? I think that unfortunately, some of these questions don't have very easy answers, right? You know, for a lot of biases, even when we know they're there, we know they're there, but we still do this, right? So it's tough. I think the first step, at least in my opinion, is just educating yourself to know what they are, to be on the lookout for them. You know, for example, if I know that I'm going to anchor and adjust on the budget, right? If I know I'm going to insufficiently adjust this year, then I should at least, as I look at this number that I'm getting, keep that in mind, right? Does that mean it's going to fix the problem? Maybe, maybe not. But 
we can't even become close to thinking about fixing the problem if we don't know it exists. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it does come down to awareness. So there are different biases that seem like they can be maybe not eliminated, but mitigated by awareness. So the, we we had talked before about affect is information. People are happier on sunny days and they tend to have really positive outlooks on the market on these sunny days. But then if you say, hey, it's a really sunny day out, right? It's a nice day out. And they realize they're happy because it's a sunny day. All of a sudden, that bias doesn't necessarily carry over into kind of their investment because they realize where it's coming from. I think it's also one other thing is is definitely know about or try try your best to understand the biases that you have, but also realize that you're going to be on the receiving end of these as well, right? And so as people interact with you and your organization, you know, kind of think, okay, well, if they're going to come in and they people are generally overconfident, if they say that they feel that this is going to be a slam dunk 12 out of 10 thing, think, all right, okay, I, you know, that yeah. may be the case. However, you know, they could be coming to the table with, with some overconfidence on their own end. But it's, it's difficult. It's really tricky because the other thing that's a problem is that we seem to be really aware of the biases in other people, but we don't think we're subject to the same biases. So like another one of the biases that I really like, quote unquote, is the self-serving attribution bias, right? So if something good happens, it's because I am awesome. And if something bad happens, it's because I had bad luck, right? So if you ask other people, is the average person biased in their attribution and more likely to give themselves credit for good outcomes and blame external factors for bad outcomes? They're like, oh, yeah, sure. And then if you ask them, well, what about you? Do you do the same thing? Like, absolutely not. No, I'm completely rational. And so even knowing about the biases isn't enough. You have to know about them and also accept the fact that you are probably a biased person. <laughs> Which is tough. You know, there's a yeah, lot of stuff we have to accept about ourselves. Yeah, but... you got to believe a lot of things about yourself you don't want to believe. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I wanted to circle back a little bit to creativity. And Professor Guggenmos, on the first day of managerial accounting, you shared quite the creative story about how you attended the Super Bowl for free. So as a segue into our next topic, could you share with our listeners a bit of this backstory? Sure. It's kind of funny because I never remember what I talk about on the first day of class, but evidently everybody else does. So when I was a graduate student at the University of Massachusetts, the one thing that I didn't, well, there's two things I didn't give up from my hometown in Seattle. We had coffee shipped to us every week, and then we were huge Seahawks fans. So my wife and I have been season ticket holders for many years and been flying as much as we could back and forth while trying to do a PhD, which is not anything I recommend. But anyway, the Seahawks were doing very well my third year of the program, very, very well, and ended up doing well enough to get through the playoffs and then get through the playoffs and then make it to Super Bowl 48 in New York City. As a grad student, I can't afford to buy Super Bowl tickets. As a professor, I don't know that I can afford to buy Super Bowl tickets. Those things are crazy. But a local television station had a contest where if you had the most likes on a Facebook photo, you won a pair of tickets to the Super Bowl, transportation to the game, a catered lunch in Manhattan, some spending money, all sorts of stuff. So I saw the commercial come up on TV and I turned to my wife and she kind of looked at me and she said, you're going to win that contest, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. And I didn't have a plan, but what we ended up doing is thought about this more and Google advertising gives you these free credits to advertise Google AdWords. So what I did is I took some of those credits and I made ads to run in Seattle that highlighted the contest and asked them to click on our picture and support a fellow 12th man to go to the Super Bowl. We targeted these at people back in Seattle who we thought would click on the ads. And we said, if we win the contest, we'll donate $500 to Children's Hospital, which we did because we won the contest, right? And so it was, it was kind of funny. The other thing that happened is that the New England Patriots had gotten kicked out of the playoffs or had lost in the playoffs. So the New England market wasn't as excited about football, which helped us immensely. 
But, you know, as we watched it click down to midnight, and of course, once midnight hit, we got an email from the, the station and got to go for free. So it was an amazing experience. Seeing a Super Bowl in person is something most people don't get, but to see you know, your hometown team win their first Super Bowl in franchise history was pretty amazing. So I think that's a great segue into our next topic of social media and investor disclosure, because Facebook was where in 2012, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings really kickstarted the use of social media in investor communications when he posted the latest viewership numbers to his personal account, which based on SEC regulations was investor information. Professor Renekamp, perhaps you could walk our listeners through the evolution of investor communication since then. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's something that's really exploded in recent years that you see more and more companies have Twitter accounts, they have Facebook accounts. Some of them have smartphone apps where they're pushing out information to investors every day. And I think the other thing that's been interesting in following this, and it kind of touches on this with some of the research that we've done, is there definitely is a spectrum of effectiveness in how well they're doing, how well they can pull this off whether they're tailoring what they're doing to fit with what their company kind of is known for or not. And it's still a learning process. Like companies are trying to figure out how to do this correctly. Investors are trying to figure out how to use this to interact with companies. We'll see where it kind of goes, I guess. I think what's interesting about this area is that, you know, one of the other ways that it's labeled is a new media. And I think that's very accurate, right? It's very new. All of a sudden, you know, companies were you know, releasing these these paper filings. Then all of a sudden, the filings were happened to be available on websites if you looked. Then the filings became more than filings, and they were actual disclosures on websites. And then all of a sudden, you've got Twitter. And then fa- and so this thing, every day you turn around, it seems like there's another platform, right? And so what's interesting about this area is, like Christy said, it's this place where no one really knows what to do, so they just start doing things, right? And so one of my favorite, my favorite examples is, it's more of a marketing example, but you know, Hamburger Helper, went out and on Twitter and they said, you know, we're going to advertise Hamburger Helper on Twitter. I'm still not sure why that was the first idea, but they said, you know, make us helper and we'll make you our bay, right? And so they're talking about this term at that point. It was, in, this is in like 2013, where this is a term used basically by 10 to 14 year olds at that point who are probably not in the store buying Hamburger Helper. And the internet just said, what are you doing, <laughs> right? And so that's a marketing example, but the same thing exists with financial disclosure, right? When companies don't know what to do and they just start trying things, we just kind of see what happens. Now, in the Netflix example, that was a CEO's personal Facebook account. And I can think of a few examples of a few popular CEO Twitter accounts that garner lots of attention. For example, Elon Musk of Tesla, John Ledger of T-Mobile. And so how does the type of account, personal versus corporate, change the perception of investor communication? So I think it kind of depends on the company and how closely the company is associated with the head of the Like, I I think people, they understand it with Tesla that Elon Musk is basically the face of the company. Now, whether he's behaving appropriately on Twitter is a whole nother question. I don't think we have enough time for that. (laughs) Yeah. So like one of the research projects that I've worked on looks at how closely the, the CEO is kind of associated with the message. You know, is the message coming from the firm or is the message coming from the CEO with the picture? of the CEO and finding that when the CEO kind of puts their image on the line and associates themselves with the message more closely, then people find it a little bit more credible, a little bit more trustworthy, and they react a little bit more strongly to the information. Although, you know, there's going to be variation depending on how good of a fit it is for the company, I think. You're right, Ryan, that companies are just trying to figure this out. They don't know if they're friends with investors right now or how to bridge the gap between are they talking to their customers? Are they talking to the investors? Like what's going on? And there's doing it 
in different ways that maybe are more and less effective. No, and I think this is one of the areas where it's really good for us on our research, you know, with the research we do, as far as being experiments, because in the Twitter world, right, there's a million different variations of this. And so it's really hard to see, well, this person uses a picture, but it's also a CEO of this type of company with this product. And this one's, you know, got this thing going on, but these other things moving too. And so it's tough. And so like for a study that I looked at or that, that I worked on, it looked at the match between a company's innovation level or the, the, the type of company and product that it had versus the type of platform. For example, you know, some companies we think of as cool or like cooler, right? So you think about your, you know, your tech companies, your Apple, your your Facebook, and then you think about companies that are good companies, but they're they're not as cool, like, you know, Xerox or paper products, you know, all these companies that just are, they do good business, but they, they're not the ones that, you know, are as, as hip or whatever you'd want to call it. And with communication mediums, it's the same thing, right? So Twitter, for example, and, and maybe less so today than when we ran the study in 2014, but it's definitely the area where this is the cool thing to do, right? You get on and you tweet and people read it and that's great. But then there's things like email, which it's like, great, email, right? We get more emails and no one gets excited about email, right? And so we found that when companies had more innovative or kind of hipper images and products and used, you know, more innovative or hipper communications platforms, there was a match. And so investors processed information a little more quickly and they, they didn't hesitate when making an investment. On the other hand, when these mismatched, when you either had a hip company image and a hip communication platform or a cool platform and not a cool company, either way, we had this mismatch you would have hesitation before investment. And it's kind of an interesting to see and really came from seeing some of these social media gaffes from more of on the marketing side. So, and I have a project, I think that is kind of along the same lines with one of our PhD students, Patrick Witts, about this idea of fit, although it's not so much a company fit as the formality of the language in disclosures and how good of a fit they are for the medium, where the idea is that more traditional disclosure media are a better fit for formal, kind of formal language and sort of the way you would expect companies to talk versus when you move disclosures over to social media and Twitter, the less formal language is maybe a better fit. So not informal language, right? There's not companies doing this kind of hamburger helper style, like, what's up, everybody? But um, <laughs> but less formal language like goes over well because it's a fit for the medium. And I think it goes along with this idea of companies are still just trying to figure this out. And there's some evidence they can't just take what they've always been doing in traditional media and move it over to these new venues. It's just not going to work. And I think that builds a little bit on the work that you've done on readability and investor communication. Yeah. So that's going all the way back to when I got my <laughs> dissertation. Yeah. So I, when I was working on this, it was around 2011 that I got interested in this, that the SEC had this big foot push for plain English. Like we need to be talking to regular investors. And Warren Buffett has always said that he, I don't, can't remember who it was he's talking to. He, he imagines like writing his letter to shareholders, like he's writing to his great aunt or something, like kind of an average person. If it's not understandable to her, then it's not a good disclosure. But when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, making things understandable and readable makes sense. But is there such a thing as maybe that not being a good, always a good idea, right? So my research looks at disclosure readability and this idea that when disclosures are more readable and they feel like they're easy to understand, then maybe you use that cue, that, that feeling. So this goes back to this idea of affect is information. You use that positive feeling about how easy it was to read as a cue that this is information I can rely on. And then you react a little bit more strongly to the information. 
And in some cases, that, that's great. Understanding the information is great. But it's not great if you feel like you understand something and you really don't understand it at all. So if investors think, oh, yeah, cash flow hedges, I got this. This is easy. And then they react, but they don't actually know what's going on. That could be a negative thing. And so the idea here is you want to make things understandable, but not so understandable that people feel like they understand something that they don't understand because it could have negative implications for for what they decide to do. Yeah, and it's a balancing act, right? I mean, you know, you want to make sure that information is out there and you want to make sure that you've You've done your due diligence in disclosing to the market, but, you know, maybe those cues, just like in a lot of other areas, maybe those cues aren't what we want to be relying on. So moving a bit from the content of the communication to the actual delivery of the communication, you both recently worked on a paper together entitled iFOMO to research how investors may exhibit a fear of missing out on investor information. Could you start off with what is iFOMO and what were your motivations when you began to study it? So iFOMO, I think, is an interesting idea just because we all know about FOMO, right? So FOMO, this idea that, you know, no matter what you're doing, there's something going on in the world that you wish you could be a part of, right? And so I think that the stereotypical thing is that you go and you decide to finally take an evening off and like get to bed early and you look at your phone and you go, oh my God, like there's all this stuff happening and I'm not a part of it, right? But that's fine. And that's been researched in psychology and is is a construct and they can, they have a scale to evaluate this in people. But there's also that person that is at their kid's birthday party and they can't stay out of their Fidelity account, right? They're like, oh my God, I need this. I need these market news. I, I got to figure out is things going up or things going down? And that's that's not the same person because they're at the social event. They shouldn't be missing out, right? But they, they feel that way, right? And so thinking about that, you know, we tried to figure out how are we going to, what is this? And, you know, how do we measure it in people? And, and where do we where do we find this? And that's kind of how this research project started. Yeah, you stole my example. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> Saying that you, you're always, you can always think of you're going out to dinner with your friends, right? And you're having a nice conversation and there's that one friend that just can't stop picking up their phone to check for market news. And we were thinking like, who are these people and what is wrong with them? <laughs> <laughs> and so, but we started with the FOMO. So there's a well-established scale for fear of missing out on social experiences, this FOMO scale. So we started with that and then we tailored it a little bit to fit with fear of missing out on more economic type opportunities or financial opportunities and did a whole bunch of scale validation. And then we did some addition, we've done some additional research to try and understand how this, this fear of missing out on investment opportunities affects their processing of information and investment decisions. And some of the ways that smartphones have changed the delivery of investment information. So with the rise of smartphones, there's a couple of interesting things that have changed. So one thing that's changed is that to kind of optimize this mobile delivery of content, news agencies have split information into a greater number of small pieces of information. So we're getting information more frequently in short little bursts. And then the other big thing is that smartphones enable these push notifications so that this information is like jumping right out in front of you. And the idea here is that especially for people that are afraid of missing out on investment opportunities, these are really powerful changes, that they have a way to constantly be getting investment information. And it's pushed right out in front of them. And they can't look away, right? And so we find that these people, they check for information more frequently. They're reading this information. They're always looking for it. They're clicking on the information. And then they actually react more strongly to the information. They feel like it's more timely. They feel like it's more informative and they go for it. And so it's changing. Again, we're not saying one behavior versus another is the right behavior. We don't have that benchmark in our study, but we do know that they're behaving differently 
and it potentially has consequences. Now, I think one of the interesting things about this study is, you know, when you create this these kind of experimental worlds, you're always trying to figure out how to make it as realistic as you can so it's not weird, but also at the same time hold all these things constant so you can really address one piece of it, right? And so in the study, we had people interact with a virtual iPhone. So they had a iPhone on their screen, but then when they went into it, they got to play this video game. So they're playing Breakout, right, from the you know early 80s or something. And But as they're doing this, you know, some of the people are receiving push notifications. Some of them actually have to pause the game to go out to an app to check for news. And so, but we incentivize them equally to do well on the game versus to attend to the investment information. So we really got where we could say, hey, we've balanced these incentives. Some people are going to be more interested, you know, in checking this news. Some people are going to be more interested in playing this game. And we're going to just see how these play out. And it was a fun study to run. It was also a fun study in the fact that, you know, we get to play around with. So you have to make sure your your instrument, your experimental instrument works. So you have to test this game. Yeah, we played a lot of Breakout. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's kind of nice when you're playing Breakout and, you know, your department head comes by and like pops in and you're playing Breakout. It's like, it's for work, I promise. And it was, so. As an investor, what can I do to mitigate the impact of iFOMO? I don't want to overclaim from our study, but I think that maybe the best thing to do is to try and disable some of these push notifications. Even though if you are high in iFOMO, that is like the last thing you want to do. Like, keep myself away from information? Absolutely not. But really, that seems like the best thing, given what we've, we found in the study. So we found that people who didn't have the, the push notifications and were high in iFOMO, once they went and checked for information, they felt like it was a little bit less timely and a little bit more stale. And so they, they, didn't, they didn't react too strongly to the information. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think in general, I mean, I, th I think it's safe advice because I think whether we're talking about push notifications for investment news or, you know, you have a new friend request, like turning off notifications, I think is generally not a terrible bit of advice anyway. We have so many of these things, right? But in general, if you know that it's like anything else, like if you know that you have a predisposition to watching too much Netflix, right? Maybe you should turn off the thing that auto advances you <laughs> to the next show, right? And it's it sounds funny to be like, because it sounds so common sense, but whether it is or is not, people have trouble with this stuff, right? And everything you can do to kind of know about the bias, take a step back and make it just a little bit more difficult on yourself to engage in that behavior, you're going to do a little bit better for yourself. So in this case, if it's your high FOMO, you've got to get this investment news, figuring out some ways to wean yourself off might be just simple as turning those notifications off or maybe setting yourself boundaries. I'm not going to check, you know, post-market, right? We're not making trades at 8 p.m. Maybe you can wait till morning, right? Something like that. How can I tell if I am susceptible to iFOMO? Will there be a test in the future? That... We have a scale. <laughs> they can take the scale. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, it's fun. it's kind of funny because, you know, when you create something like this, the first thing, at least for me, I wanted to was, where am I on the what's scale, right? <laughs> and what's nice, I think I was relatively low in iFOMO. I'm not. Um, that surprises me zero. <laughs> but and, and, and it's one of those things. Everybody's, you know, it's, it's all a spectrum, right? It's kind of funny. It would be interesting to go through, you know, through the halls of Sage and try to be like, is that a high HFMO person? It's like, mm, I don't know, take the scale. So maybe, maybe that'll happen someday, who knows? And so to wrap up our conversations, for our listeners who could both be managers and or investors today and into the future, what advice would you like them to take away from this episode? I think, at least for me, and this is something that I talk about in class, because I think the good thing about being a professor is you have a, at least for, you know, 75 minutes of time, you have a captive audience, right? It's just to, to try to know yourself, right? You know, there's going to be a lot of things out there that... You know, good actors, bad actors, neutral actors, biases, all these things moving all at the same time. But to take a step back and say, okay, well, this is what I do know. This is what I know that I'm susceptible to. This is what I know is important to me. And try to navigate the best you can and not try not to be hard, too hard on yourself. I mean, 
the good thing and the bad thing about having all these things moving at once is that sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's someone else's fault, sometimes it's random chance. So you just do the best you can. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I would also add, in addition to kind of knowing yourself, is just reiterating that if you're an investor, especially, the people that are preparing the financial reporting are also infallible people too, right? They're using a lot of discretion. They're using a lot of judgment. Their judgment is sometimes going to be biased. Like on the first day of, of class, I always do this exercise with students because they, they come in and they think accounting is just a bunch of rules. Pull the accounting out of the accounting system and you're, you're going to have your financial reports done in a day. Like, why do we have to even take this class? <laughs> a balance sheet is a balance sheet. But we do this kind of divergent thinking exercise where there's a, a fancy rug on the floor and a bottle of juice on the rug. And they have to think about how they could free the rug from this bottle of juice without spilling the juice on this expensive rug. And they, they break out and then whisper and they're kind of laughing, like, what is going on in this accounting class? And then they come back together and they come up with all these creative ideas. Like, this is Ithaca. It's cold. Open the window. Wait till the juice freezes and then you can move the bottle. Or, you know, all kinds of things. Pull the little Houdini and just like yank the rug out from under the juice. And then when we get done talking, we discuss how this, this is kind of what I want you to take away from an accounting course. That, that, yes, there are a set of rules, but there's all kinds of different ways to apply these rules. And so... Two different companies with different economics are going to have different financial reporting. And part of that comes from the judgment that's coming in there from the managers. And so I think just be aware of that and maybe read some of our research because it's actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one, that's one thing that's really cool to be part of accounting at Johnson because Johnson has such a history of this type of behavioral judgment decision making, whether in accounting or marketing or psychology. And so, you know, I think a lot of at least, I mean, the two of our accounting courses have a lot of that flavor of, you know, Yes, there are numbers and there are rules and that's a thing. But, you know, what are we here to do? We're here to make decisions. And if you're going to be a manager, if you're going to be an investor, you're going to be making decisions. So if you can have some tools to make them, you know, a little more right, a little more of the time and understand how they get made, I think you're just going to be a little bit better off. Professor Renekamp, Professor Grudemus, thank you very much for being a guest on Present Value. Thanks thank again. you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Shola Ayabusi, Matt Douglas, and Paul Whitco from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Jonathan Tin. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.